You're listening to TIP. On today's show, I sit down with Austin Lieberman to talk growth investing, investing in SaaS companies, and how he personally invests. Austin used to be with the United States Air Force and is now an advisor at Seven Investing. With his wealth of knowledge and willingness to share his wins and losses, I consider Austin to be a hidden gem in the investing space. Austin and I consistently bounce ideas off one another, and I always leave our conversations feeling smarter and more informed than I did before. I hope you all enjoyed this week's episode with Austin Lieberman. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your host, Robert Leonard, interviews successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Hey, everyone. Welcome to today's show. As always, I'm your host, Robert Leonard. And with me today, I have Austin Lieberman. Welcome to the show, Austin. Hey, Robert. Thanks for having me. We've been kind of talking back and forth on Twitter for a long time. Big fan of, of you and everybody involved with the Investors Podcast Network. So it's an honor to be here and excited to talk to you. I appreciate that. Thank you. Let's start the conversation by talking about your background. How'd you get to where you are today? And why'd you get into investing? Well, my parents had a lot of money. That's how I got to where I am today. No, I mean, quick stuff on me, just in general, in life. Grew up in kind of middle-class family. Grew up in Florida, went to college and did kind of some military officer training in college and then commissioned to be an officer in the Air Force in 2011. Did that for eight years. And growing up, never had really family that was involved in investing. My parents were middle-class, did fine, but it was always kind of paycheck. We were never... There was ever an emergency, really tough to get by. So didn't have that, that exposure growing up. Really wasn't until my first assignment in the Air Force where I kind of had a mentor that was talking about how, how much money he had made in Netflix since he had owned it a few years ago. And he told me kind of what it was at when he bought it. And he told me you know he had turned something like $9,000 into $89,000 or something. And I was like, holy crap, that's amazing. And just continued talking to him, learning from him. And that was in about 2012. And so since then, just continued kind of diving headfirst into investing, learning about investing, and specifically investing in individual companies and trying to be a long-term investor. About 2018, I got off of active duty in the Air Force and kind of transitioned into a civilian job. I did some consulting for a year with a really amazing company. And around that time, I started kind of just getting more active on Twitter and meeting people and meeting people like you and, and just sort of like growing my network, following Fintwit unintentionally, not, not realizing what those connections can do over time. Started a little email newsletter and talking about investing and kind of just like documenting my journey. And here we are today. I kind of through that, I met Simon Erickson, who is the, the founder and CEO of kind of this new thing, Seven Investing. And uh, I'm, I'm now involved as a lead advisor on, on that team with Seven Investing. And that's something we just launched recently. That's kind of where I'm at today. That's awesome. So when you were just getting started back in 2012 as a brand new investor without much background in it, where did you start? I mean, there's so much information out there. Where did you dive in to really start learning about investing? So actually, I lied a little bit in that story unintentionally. I started investing in 2011. When you're about to commission as an officer in these military training programs, it's pretty clear that you're going to have income because they know what you're going to make as an officer. And so USAA 
the bank that a lot of military people use and I use back then, still use it, offers, they're called cadet loans. So you're a cadet when you're still in training. And uh, I got a $25,000 loan my senior year of college, which was 2011. And with that loan, they use that just, you can use it to get started. It's like a 3% interest rate or something like that. And you use it to pay for like your moving expenses and to do stuff. So I spent some of it on a cruise with my roommates. That was a great time. I bought a road bike for myself and my fiance at the time, who's now my wife. We've been married for, I think, nine years, a long time. She's getting pretty old. No, kidding. And then I think I bought our, her engagement ring with that and then helped pay for a wedding and stuff like that. I had about $8,000 left over. And I decided that the best way to do that was to start investing, which is a great thing, right? The way I started investing was watching Jim Cramer and CNBC. And I bought... I remember what I owned. I owned Annaly, which is a real estate investment trust. I owned AT&T and I owned like something that was involved with the VIX. And it was, it was like one of those leveraged ETFs where you're basically... It's guaranteed to go to zero if you own it for too long. And so what happened was that $8,000 turned into like $4,000 and it quickly like tainted everything that I, I... I just thought investing was a big scam. So that was 2011. And then in 2012, I got introduced kind of to what real investing is in my opinion. And so that's where I, the mentor that was kind of teaching me introduced me to The Motley Fool and actually have spent some time just as a freelance writer for them over the years. And just digging into their services, and and they've got some incredible services for investors to start learning about investing. The ones that I used to subscribe to were Stock Advisor and Rule Breaker Investing. So that's where I started to find ideas about investing back in 2012, and that's kind of changed a little bit now. But we can probably get into that later. So you mentioned that you're a long-term investor, but what type of strategies do you follow these days? When you say these days, it's like feels like. Every day these days in investor world is like 10 days, right? Or more, just with how much volatility there is. So, really interesting question, a really timely question. And, you know, it's something that I'm not real proud of right now, the way I've been acting as an investor. And I'll get to that in a second, but a couple things, right? Carl Richards is a financial advisor. He's on Twitter at Behavior Gap, huge fan of his. He's just a super awesome person, too. Um, I've had some kind of conversations with him through DM, and he's just such a great person. So, follow him if you want to learn about finance and investing in general. But He's got a book called The Behavior Gap and fascinating book. And what it talks about, and really he's talking not about individual companies necessarily, but more about index funds. And the behavior gap is the difference between investor returns and investment returns. So I don't know exactly what the specifics are in the book, but in general, S&P 500 returns 8% a year or whatever. Well, investor returns, so the return of investors is actually like 4%. Reason that gap is there is because of bad habits and tendencies that people have to trade in and out of investments. So that's the part that I'm not real proud of myself for lately. Is I've been, I'm still, you know, invested very long term with most of my portfolio, but I've taken percentage of my portfolio and and like tried to get smart, which is really silly, and trade in and out and and you know buying puts on SPY and the S and P 500, which means basically you're just like trying to time whether this thing's going to go up or down in any given day or week or whatever. And uh, so that's I've been doing that a little bit with a small percentage of my portfolio. But in general, 90% plus of my portfolio is invested in really the type of companies that I'm focused on are more like enterprise software companies. And so 
when we say enterprise software, we mean uh, companies that create software that big businesses use. And so if you think about some popular companies that are like that Salesforce, tickers, CRM is an enterprise software company. They do customer relationship management software for huge organizations and it helps them run their businesses really. So Salesforce, Salesforce's customers rely on Salesforce to improve their business. And so I mainly focus on enterprise software companies. You'll also hear them kind of called SaaS companies, software as a service. And then keyword for the last few years has been cloud companies. So when you think about cloud computing, that's things like Amazon Web Services, Google Cloud Platform, and Microsoft Azure. Those are big cloud providers that people can basically rent space from them so they don't have to have all their own servers and stuff like that. And I'm also kind of focused on just really companies with digital strategies. So if you think about like digital entertainment companies is what I like to call them. These are companies like the Trade Desk, Spotify, Netflix. I don't own Netflix, but I own Spotify. Used to own the Trade Desk, recently sold that. And then even like Roku is another company. And so with those, I look for those types of companies and then I have a pretty concentrated portfolio. So generally holding between 10 and 20 companies. And, and I, I have right now, like 35% of my portfolio is invested in Alteryx, which is a data analytics company. That's my, my largest holding. And then I've got, I don't know, around 15 or 16% in my next two largest companies, which are, I have to look at it, but I think it's Datadog and uh, which ticker is DDOG and then CrowdStrike, CRWD. And then the rest are kind of like 5%-ish positions. And I've got right now, it's I think around 12, maybe 15 companies. I would have to look at it. Generally, concentrated portfolio, mostly software stuff, 10 to 20 companies. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey, everyone. It's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. 
You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found in the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. All right, back to the show. So being so focused on just technology, I'd say, which are often high growth companies that sometimes have inconsistent earnings or cash flow. How do you think about valuation? When might a company deserve a bit of a premium because that company is just so good? Really good question. Really important question. And it's amazing. There's so many different opinions on this, right? You've got some of the best investors of all time. Warren Buffett might really mess his name up. Manish Pabrai, Benjamin Graham, different people like that, that are like in the value camp, right? And they're looking for things that are cheaper than what they're worth if you were to add up all their, all their assets. And that's how they figure out what the best investments are. You can't argue with it because they've done amazing things. You can look at their track record. I don't invest that way at all. And I look for... And so this is kind of a trait of David Gardner, who is one of the founders of The Motley Fool, got his own podcast, Rule Breaker Investing. It's incredible. It's my third favorite podcast now. My first favorite is the Seven Investing Podcast, which is actually coming out. And it'll probably be out by the time you air this. My second favorite is obviously the Millennial Investing Podcast. And then my third favorite is uh, Rule Breaker Investing by David Garner. One of the things David Garner talks about... I mean, David is another... I think he's one of the best investors of our generation. And he puts so much stuff out there for free. So one of the things he talks about as a trait of a Rule Breaker stock is he actually looks for companies that are considered to be overvalued. And so when you think about these companies, you're, you're thinking about companies like Amazon, Google, Netflix, throughout almost their entire history of existence, if you were to ever talk to a value investor about them, they would come back and say, that company is overvalued. I don't understand it. It's too complicated. I can't make sense of the value of it. And so I'm going to avoid it. But really, those there are some companies, and, and this is what I believe in and how I invest. There are some companies that because of their lead in either technology, talent, or data is another huge one. Recurring revenue models. So a very... You mentioned that sometimes their revenue can be a bit unreliable or up and down. But one of the things I actually look for are companies with recurring revenue. And so that revenue is actually very predictable. And, and so because of that, and because they're creating software, which you don't have to go order new materials to build the next vehicle or the next house or have inventory of clothing that you need to pay for up front and then sell. To create new software, literally, it almost costs nothing to sell another license for Salesforce to the next customer. The cost comes up front in the research and development, in the hiring, in the technology. Once they've got it and they've got the platform, it almost costs nothing to scale that infinitely and sell it to as many customers as possible. And so for that reason, I believe, and it's kind of been proven over time that those types of companies deserve a higher multiple. And so I really don't even look at price to earnings multiple because a lot of these companies don't have earnings. They're unprofitable. But I won't just invest in any unprofitable company. For example, Uber and Lyft, not interested in those companies at all because I can't see how they're making progress towards becoming what I believe are profitable companies or more valuable companies just because of how high their expenses are and their, their costs. With a lot of these software companies, even though they're currently unprofitable on a price to earnings basis, they're growing sales. So they're, they're growing their revenue at 40% 
year over year or 50 or 60. Or for Alteryx, it was, I think it was 75% year over year in their last report. So what that means is if they're a little bit expensive right now on a price to sales ratio, then if the stock were to just not move at all for a year, they're going to have 75% more, almost 75% more revenue next year. And so that, that cuts that price to sales ratio down significantly because their revenue is going to continue to grow. And so very quickly, these companies start to actually get cheap. And so getting a little long-winded here, but as long as we can find a company that has a reliable, a good product, good leadership, they continue to innovate and they have recurring sales, it's actually pretty predictable what their sales are going to look like in two years, three years, and four years. And if you start to multiply that out 75%, of course, it's going to drop a little bit, but even down to 45%, if they can keep that up for a few years, then the revenue is three, four, five times higher than it was today in a few years. And, and so that's how these companies have some of these outsized returns over time. I've actually been pretty influenced by David Gardner myself. I'm pretty Warren Buffett through and through. I'm a, I'm a value investor, but not just David Gardner, but also just the Motley Fool's way of investing. I, I greatly enjoy all of their podcasts as well. I chat with a, a bunch of those guys frequently and they've had a big impact on how I invest. And I'm not fully to the point where I can invest in some of the high-flying tech companies like David Gardner recommends. I need a little bit more on the valuation front and a little bit more on the earnings and cash flow side, but they've definitely got me a lot further or a lot closer to, to those types of things. So I definitely like that conversation that you just just had and I'm moving into some of the technology plays myself and even some of the fintech that not a lot of people would consider like a Warren Buffett style pick, but just for all the reasons that you just mentioned, I like those type of companies as well. You've been talking about Square lately, right? Yeah, I'm a big, big fan of the fintech space. Three of my five biggest holdings are in the fintech space, Visa, MasterCard, and Square. We'll get you over. We'll get you over to the, the growth side soon. All right. We'll get you. Yeah. And, and it's funny enough, my other two that round up my top... So the top five picks in my portfolio are about 80% of my portfolio. And the other two are Adobe and Markel. So Markel is not necessarily as much of a growth play. Adobe is, but that's just kind of how I, I've, I've kind of progressed. And I really like the fintech space. But when we talk about... And I'm starting to like some technology. I have a position in uh, Datadog, just like you mentioned, that I really like that company as well. I'm slowly scaling into that a couple other companies. But one of the things that I'm trying to still grapple with or learn as a relatively new investor in the software or tech space is how do you analyze a company's competitive advantage with their software? How do you know that someone isn't going to come along and just completely wipe out their their IP or their software? And I guess that's my biggest yeah. concern is like you said, I mean the marginal cost of a new customer is essentially zero, which makes their business models extremely attractive, which I like, of course, as an investor. But what concerns me is that brings a lot of competition. And software is one of those things that could be somewhat easily knocked off. So how do you analyze that potential of happening? Good question. And it's like one of the most important things to be able to do and to get comfortable with to be a successful investor. And again, there's successful investments and successful investors, right? And so to be a successful investor, you have to find successful investments, but then you have to be able to hold them long enough to be successful. And Monish Prabhai, actually, huge fan of his. And it's funny, like I'm not a, a value investor, but I follow all these people because they're just super smart. But I heard him in an interview talking about how he is 
it was, I forget what the quote is, but he said he's smart enough to find great investments, but he's too dumb to hold them. And, and it's, it's so true. So not about him, but about me. I feel that way a lot of times. Okay. So getting to how to figure out how these companies are going to continue to have a competitive advantage, right? And this is one of the things like, again, I'm a nobody. So who am I to question these people? But there's a lot of people out there who talk about moats and they want to find companies with competitive moats. The old definition of a competitive moat was this company has built up some amazing manufacturing capability or pole production capability or whatever through a lot of times like capital expenditures, things that are expensive to build up over time. And with that come economies of scale and they're able to become more profitable over time. What I think we've seen as technology has advanced and you're able to do more with software. And we've actually seen a lot of like our GDP, gross domestic product, switch over to be... It's even hard to figure out what GDP actually is because so much of it is software and IP related now. I actually think that old model of a moat is a liability because things change so fast. And the coronavirus is a perfect example, right? Like everybody's world just changed almost immediately and unexpectedly. If you look at the companies that have been able to pivot and change their model and, and continue being successful, in most cases, they're very capital light companies. They don't have car production lines, cruise ships, airplanes that they have to fly, right? So that's where some of these old moats and competitive advantages are actually becoming liabilities. So getting back to the question, how do you figure out if these software companies have sustainable advantages, competitive advantages? A lot of ways, it's impossible to know. It's impossible for me to look at Datadog and say, in 10 years, they're going to still have the lead that they do. They have now. But I would argue that you don't have to. And the reason I'm saying that is because if, if you're only invested in 10 to 20 companies and you're able to pay attention to them, and then obviously you're going to pay more attention to your top five companies, which make up 80% of your portfolio, you're obviously going to pay more attention to the top five companies in your portfolio, which are 80% of your portfolio. And so what I do is I watch quarterly reports, I watch investor presentations, I listen to earnings, earnings calls and read transcripts, and I watch their metrics. And if I'm continuing to see for the companies I watch, there's a few big data points I look at. Year-over-year revenue growth. So if I if that's continuing to either grow or stay as stable as I think it should, because it's it's hard to continue growing revenue growth at the same rate as their revenue gets more. That's law of large numbers. I look at gross profit margin, which is how profitable it is they are when they in just selling their product. Sales and marketing expense as a percentage of revenue. I want to see that going down over time. Because with software companies, as they scale and they get better known, they shouldn't have to spend as much on sales and marketing to effectively sell their product because it, people know them better. And then they're able to get recurring sales from their existing customers. And then I look at operating margin, just another way to tell if a company is making progress towards profitability. And then with software companies, especially with companies with recurring revenue, so that's a customer that signs up for a monthly contract or an annual contract or whatever. There's a term dollar-based net expansion rate. And what that means is you want to see that over 100%. And really, I look for companies that are about 120 to 130%. And that's like some of the best companies in the world. And what that means, if it's 120%, that means existing customers. What that means, dollar-based net expansion rate, if it's 120%, that means that if you have a customer one year, the next year, that customer is spending 120% of what they spent the previous year. So 20% more. So that's a super efficient business model if you think about it, because they're not having to market to that customer or go out and sign up a new customer. That's the same customer 
just growing their spend with the company. When you look at that and the growth of new customers, it's a pretty reliable business model. And so that's what I was getting at when I was talking about some of these companies, are, their sales are actually kind of predictable and pretty reliable. And so my argument to can we, how do we know if these companies are going to be continue to be leaders is you don't have to know right now. You've got to know what numbers matter for the company you're looking at, and then just make sure that those numbers are tracking in the right direction. And another huge, huge thing is that as these companies get more successful, they become the place that everybody wants to work. And so when that happens, they're going to attract more talent, better people, and that is going to make the company a better place to work. They're going to have better employee retention. They're going to have smarter individuals going to work there. And so their product is going to continue to get better and better. And so I also kind of look at management and culture and glass door ratings, CEO ratings, and, and things like that. So before you can look at any of those metrics and all of the different things that you just mentioned, how do you even get these companies on your radar in the first place? Are you using a stock screener or are you maybe using something else? So I'm a huge fan of Y charts, which is a it's basically a data tool and it has charting and you can pull up all kinds of data. So I use Y charts to kind of like dig in and and find data about companies. Occasionally I'll look for like screens of companies. I, I use screens like very, very little, almost never. If I use a screen, it's going to be looking for Company that's over a billion dollar market cap, below fifty billion dollars in market cap, growing revenue thirty to eighty percent year over year, with gross margins that are sixty percent or whatever. And then I'll kind of look at companies from there. But I again, I use screens very, very little. And so really, where I get most of the ideas is just being out there on FinTwit and and looking for ideas and things like that. But I use Feedly, which is a kind of a an RSS feed. You can put in different sites and pull in RSS feeds and it updates you and, and you get a feed of things to read. And so I read like Wired Magazine to get ideas of what's going on in technology world and whether it's AI, space industry or whatever. They've got just a lot of really cool articles. And I don't really find specific companies from Wired, but it's just more broad. Hey, what are technologies that are trending? I look at TechCrunch kind of for the same thing, but TechCrunch more talks about individual companies. So I might find a company there and dig into Y charts and dig into the company's investor relations page to find more out about the company. And the third way that I find kind of interesting companies to investigate or invest in is... And I want to be careful about saying this because there's a lot of really bad articles from some of these different magazines, clickbait or whatever. But sometimes I'll look for articles every year, or maybe it's two years. I think it's Forbes come out with a list of 500 fastest growing technology companies. And a lot of companies that I'm invested in are on that list, but then also just that list had spawned a lot of research. And so I basically saw that list, searched Y charts to see what companies on that list were public companies, because a lot of them are private, and then had a list of, I think it was like 150 companies. And then I kind of just searched for the metrics that I like to look at, and then narrowed it down to 50 or so companies, and then started looking at the company's investor relations pages, their glass store. Is this a, is this a company that I'm even interested in investing in? And Monish Pabrai, again, talks about you know he looks at thousands of companies or whatever. And he said, with most companies, you know within 10 seconds if you want to invest in it or not. So the whole idea is to just curate a lot of these different news sources. So for me, it's Twitter, using Feedly to find different interesting blogs and websites and different companies and, and have their feeds come in and read them each day to learn about their products and different things like that. And then looking for kind of articles from some of these different tech magazines to find technologies in different companies, and then filtering that down through studying 
buy charts or reaching out to people. They'll post on Twitter and then really spending a lot of time looking at investor relations pages to find interesting companies. And there's, if you look at companies S1s and even on like CNBC, you can see competitors to companies. So if I found a company in an interesting industry, sometimes I'll look at their competitors too. That's a way to find other companies in the same industry that might be good companies to look at for investments. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey everyone, it's Patrick, your host of Millennial Investing. Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Buy low, sell high. It's easy to say, hard to do. For example, high interest rates are crushing the real estate market right now. Demand is dropping and prices are falling, even for many of the best assets. It's no wonder the Fundrise flagship fund plans to go on a buying spree, expanding its billion-dollar real estate portfolio over the next few months. You can add the Fundrise flagship fund to your portfolio in just minutes and with as little as $10 by visiting fundrise.com slash millennial investing. Carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses of the Fundrise flagship fund before investing. This and other information can be found on the fund's prospectus at fundrise.com slash flagship. This is a paid advertisement. Hey guys, the Range Rover Sport leads by example. It's got powerful on-road performance and commanding all-terrain capability and combines assertive on-road performance with the signature Range Rover refinement that you'd expect. The third generation Range Rover Sport is the most desirable, advanced, and dynamically capable one yet and redefines sporting luxury. It's got advanced cabin technologies such as active noise cancellation and cabin air purification, which offer new levels of comfort and refinement. The purposeful cockpit-like driving position sets the tone for a focused interior that promotes exhilarating driver engagement. Award-winning Pivi Pro infotainment is at the heart of the experience and provides intuitive control of the vehicle systems. You can also enjoy a dynamic drive in total comfort with optional 22-way adjustable heated and ventilated electric memory front seats with massage function. Design your Range Rover Sport at LandRoverUSA.com. That's LandRoverUSA.com. All right, back to the show. Once you've found these companies, put them on your radar, and you've done some due diligence, you've researched them, at what point are you comfortable taking a position? When do you think that you've gathered enough information and conducted enough research that you're ready to start investing in them? It's different for different companies. And so in my mind, I kind of have a framework and I need to get... This is one of those things where I want to become a better investor and become more disciplined. I think I'm pretty good at finding good investments. Where I can really improve is as an investor being more disciplined. And so this is one of the ways I'm trying to do that. But this is how I think about it in my mind. I've got kind of different tiers. I have what I would call a starter position or an entry position tier around a 1% position. 
I have a medium position tier that's going to be around a 5% position. And then I have a large position tier that's going to be around a 10% position. When I'm talking about size of position, I mean like of my capital. So if I have $100,000 in my account, a large position would be $10,000 that I would be willing to invest in it, $10,000 of my own money. And then the key is if you believe in that company and you're tracking the metrics, letting it grow and not touching it. So that's how Alteryx has become a 35% position in my portfolio is I invested a set amount. It was around 10% of my portfolio value. And it literally just doubled from there. And I never touched it. I left it alone. So I set these initial tiers. If a company grows, and becomes the largest position in my, in my portfolio. I let it grow and I don't touch it. So I've got these tiers, entry, medium, and large. If I find a company, and a perfect example of this was Virgin Galactic, ticker SPCE. I saw their investor deck in this to tell you how I found this company, I think I saw it just like on Twitter. I saw somebody I followed tweeted something from Chamath Papatia or however you say his name. He was talking about it was a tweet about that like the merger. His company basically bought a, a major stake in Virgin Galactic. That's how I found that company. And then dove in and saw their investor presentation. So when I looked at their investor presentation, I was like, holy cow, basically lays out a plan to where their revenue could basically increase by something like 500% over the next five years, something crazy. And I was like, you know what? This is a, I believe it was a $1 billion company at the time. They didn't IPO. So there wasn't the initial IPO pop. I was like, the first publicly available space company, I think they're going to get a great lead in data. I'm willing to make that a 1% position immediately. So without really, I spent like 30 minutes looking at it and then decided that I was willing to, to make a 1% investment. So the way I think about that is if I find a company that I think is like, I don't want to miss it, amazing, but it's a little risky. I'll just start a 1% position and then learn more about it. I won't, it takes more for me to increase that to 5% and a lot more to increase it to 10%. In general, I would, you know, a company like Virgin Galactic, I would not make that 10% position just because there's too many risks associated with it, but totally happy to let a company like that be a 1% position in my portfolio. Another example, I owned Lucan Coffee, LK. It's a, like a Chinese coffee company, Starbucks in China. Owned that for a little while. And I was happy to let that be a 1% position. 5% position needs to be a little bit more stable, more reliable. And then a 10% position, I have, a, I have to have a lot more faith in it. And in general, I will not just open a 10% position. I'll start it at one or five, learn more about it, and then build that up over time. Because most of the times, except for lately, felt like there've been some incredible opportunities. But most of the time, I don't think that I'm smart enough. And even if you are smart enough, who knows what the market's going to do? I don't know what the market's going to do. So I'm not going to fool myself into thinking I'm just going to start a 10% position in this company now. I'm going to give myself some time to learn about it and then invest over a little bit over time so that you're not putting it all into a, a company that could potentially drop a lot just because of the, the market for no good reason. And speaking of market drops, we couldn't record a, an episode right now, which is March 25th, 2020, without at least briefly discussing the current economic environment that we're in, which is, of course, the stock market crash of 2020 and COVID-19, also known as the coronavirus. How has this impacted the investing landscape? What long-term impact do you see this having on stocks? So I'll get to that in a second. If I forget, just tell me. But the, the first thing I want to say, this is where I'm not like proud of the way I've been as an investor lately, right? I've been trying to like time these little things in and out here and it's just silly, right? And so for me, this has been a reminder of like, why do I invest? And the reason I invest is for eventually to have freedom over my time and my family's time and to be able to help people, other people outside of my family. Like, hopefully, that's what I want to be able to do over time. 
But in general, it's because I want to optimize my life. What I found myself doing is trying to optimize my investments at the expense of optimizing my life, right? So I've been like wasting time basically trying to play these little market moves that like nobody except Bill Ackman, who comes on CNBC crying and crushing the market and then making $2.5 billion. Only he knows what's going on. The rest of us humans don't know what's going to happen day to day, right? So it's like, why try these silly little trades? So to answer part of your question, and it didn't really ask that question, but again, like any investment return comes back to the investor, right? So for me, it's been a stark reminder to remember why I'm investing and prioritize what's important in my life, which investing is not the most important thing. So I shouldn't be spending the most time doing it. And then really making sure that my foundation for investing is in place and I stick to that process. And for me, that means not investing any money I might need in the next three to five years so that you can withstand times like this. You're not going to need the money. That means living below my means and investing 10% or more of my income so that if something unexpected happens, I have a little cushion there. We were to lose our job or temporarily lose our job. We had to stop contributing to our investments and that gives us 10% more income we could then apply to something else. And then in addition, having an emergency fund and some expenses saved up. And so again, that's my foundation. So this has been a reminder to never let that foundation, never sacrifice that foundation because everything was going great two months ago. And no one saw this coming. At least I didn't see it coming. So as a young investor, this has been a great reminder to keep all that stuff in place. In terms of how does it impact the investing landscape? I think there's going to be companies that go to business for sure. So I'm avoiding any companies that have like high debt that are relying on some type of a, a government deal or bailout to be successful and survive. That I'm not interested in those companies, even though they've dropped a lot. And there's going to be some industries and some companies that go out of business and some industries that are changed forever. The dining industry, you know, that's going to take a long time to come back. And I don't know if that model is ever going to be the same. And when I say that, I mean, these businesses, I think, are going to adapt. And you've seen it happen already. Like A lot of restaurants have started doing takeout and delivery and stuff like that. So I think that that is going to be a part of most restaurants' strategy moving forward. And so I think that's kind of what I'm being mindful of is sticking to my process, finding strong companies. And if I wasn't interested in a company before this crisis happened, then I'm also not interested in it now during the crisis. I'm still only looking at companies that I was already interested in. And it's going to change some industries forever. And it's made me even more want to avoid oil and gas and cruise lines and airline companies, which I've never been interested in investing in. Now, I want to dive into one of your favorite stock picks. I know we've mentioned a bunch of different ones throughout the show, but we haven't done a deep dive into it yet. So I'd like to do that. And not so that the audience can run out and buy it just because you think it's a good pick, but because I think it gives us all, myself and everyone listening, a good understanding of the types of companies you're looking at and how you think about investing. So if you don't mind, please tell us one of your favorite picks right now and give us your stock pitch for that company. One of my top three holdings, and it's a company that they just recently reported, strong report. And it's also a company that I think is going to continue. Again, I was already very interested, but with more people moving online and working from home, their model gets even more attractive. And they even commented about this a little bit in their last earnings. So they just reported earnings a week or two ago. CrowdStrike. What they do is they basically do endpoint security. And so what that means is if you have users, and again, I'm not a super tech guy. So if you have super tech listeners, guarantee I'm going to get a little bit of this wrong. So you can attack me on Twitter at number seven, Austin L, and I'll happily learn from, from your critiques. 
but basically they do endpoint security. So when you've got all these devices and people working from remote all over the world, an endpoint device is a phone or a laptop or a tablet, and they're connecting into all of these super important networks and programs and things like that. Those devices are vulnerable to attacks. And so CrowdStrike basically just protects companies and users and their networks from malicious attacks. And it's especially important for small businesses, especially if they're moving online. And so this company I'm interested in, their most recent results, they have uh, $600 million in recurring revenue. And so this is where I was talking about some of these companies have pretty reliable and easy to predict revenue models. 91% of their revenue is subscription revenue. So that means people that are on a monthly or annual contract. They have 5,431 subscription customers and they had 92% annual year over year revenue growth and then a 90% subscription revenue growth. And again, back to that dollar based net retention rate, that's if it's over 100%, that means current customers are spending more each year. Dollar based net retention rate was over 120%. And so at a high level, those numbers came out and fantastic results. The company is only getting stronger, I believe, as they scale. And they made comments. I don't have the quote in front of me, but basically their CEO has said that they've seen a significant increase in malicious attack attempts since the coronavirus thing has been going on because all of these bad actors know that these companies are at risk right now as as a lot of them don't necessarily know how to work remote. They're moving systems away from poor infrastructure maybe and to remote, which just puts them at risk. And so as more people come online and work remote, their model is even more attractive. When you look at a company like this, what is the big catalyst that you see on the horizon? I was looking at the stock chart as you were talking about it. It seems like it's, you know, it's been volatile, it's gone up and down, but it's more or less traded in a range, if you will. So what do you see for a catalyst on the horizon that's going to really make the market understand or see the value that you see that they're not currently pricing in? I think I'm either wrong about CrowdStrike because it's a huge position for me, or the market is just misunderstanding it and they're going, it's, it's going to grow in value in terms of the stock at some point. But I don't think there's necessarily a single catalyst for the company because we talked about some of their growing revenue around 90% a year. Their growing subscription revenue, dollar-based net expansion rate is fantastic. So I think the company has sold off a lot of reasons that are unrelated to the specific company. And when a company sells off for reasons that I believe are unrelated to the company, that's where I'm willing to add a little bit more. And so I've been adding to the company over time. And so if you remember, cloud companies and software companies have sold off a lot at different points this year in 2019 and 2018, really. And I think that part of the reason CrowdStrike has sold off and been so volatile is just because it has sold off with a lot of these software companies as as that whole industry was just hated by Wall Street. And then most recently, it, it got crushed with everything else from the impacts of coronavirus. And it's interesting because they just reported a outstanding quarter and we've seen it rebound a little bit since then. And I think that that is going to continue. And, and again, it's a model that I think uh, it's a critical software and a critical platform for the companies that use it. So it's not just... They can't just get rid of their endpoint security. So if they're going to stay in business, endpoint security is something that companies are going to keep. And so my belief is that their model is going to continue to get stronger. And eventually, the stock and Wall Street is going to catch up to how fast this company is growing. Another thing, security and network security has been... It's been a tough industry, a competitive industry. So Wall Street seems to not like a lot of security companies. 
So I think that's that's part of the issue with CrowdStrike as well. I'm super passionate about all the stuff we talked about today. And I know you are too. So I'm sure we could keep this conversation going on for hours. But you mentioned your Twitter a few minutes ago. Where else can those listening to the show today go to learn more about you and connect with you? For one, thanks again, Robert, for having me on. I've learned a lot from you and I've learned a lot from the Investor Podcast. We study billionaires. That was one of the podcasts that I... It's not the first investing podcast I ever listened to, but I've, it was one of the first. And so I've learned a lot from that entire network. So thanks for everything you all are doing. Really appreciate anybody that's trying to empower investors. And I appreciate you asking me to come on. It's been, it's been a lot of fun. So I'm at, on Twitter at the number 7 Austin L. And then I'm part of 7investing.com. So if you want to come check us out, we recommend 7 stocks a month. They come out on the first of every month and it costs $17 a month. We're never going to upsell. There's not going to be another product. That's going to be what it costs. And that's going to be what we offer. And then we track our results for members. And once we figure out that none of us are developers, so we're still like learning how to get the web, everything up and running the way we want it. But eventually, we're going to be able to show our returns transparently to the public. But right now, we show it for members that sign up. They can see all of our picks and returns against the S&P 500 and stuff like that. Awesome. I'll be sure to put links to all those resources and ways people can connect with you in the show notes so everybody can go connect with you there. I'll also put links to all the different things we talked about throughout the show. I'll put links to a bunch of the different companies that you mentioned so people can go dive into those further as well if they're interested and read up on some of the things we talked about. Austin, thanks again so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thanks, Robert. Had a blast. All right, guys. That's all I had for this week's episode of Millennial Investing. I'll see you again next week. Thank you for listening to TIP. To access our show notes, courses, or forums, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permissions must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.